millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome everyone and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Brian Short, a former member of the Royal Marines and author of The Band That Went to War, the Royal Marines Band in the Falklands War. On this episode we're going to be discussing his career in the band, the part in the Falklands campaign, the IRA bombing of Deal Barracks and his book. So Brian, thanks for coming to Pod, mate. And can you start by telling us when you joined up, what made you enlist, and why you chose the Marines? Well, thanks very much for inviting me along. Uh, well, for me, it's a sad start because uh, the effects of war were uh, visited by my family even before I was born, because my dad was serving in the Royal Marines and in Fort Two Commander, and he was killed at Suez during the beach landing of the ill-fated Suez crisis of 1956, and he was killed just two months before I was born. So uh, when, I, when I was born, I was given his name and uh, a leaning towards the Royal Marines. Uh, and during my miserable uh, childhood, I say that advisedly, um, the one thing that I really um, took to was playing the drums. So when I went to the careers office to, to join uh, the Royal Marines, they either had a quota or they, they saw I wasn't a fighting man and they chowed me into the the Royal Marine Band Service. So I ended up in the Royal Marines as a musician for what was going to be quite a, quite a good career. How long was your career, Brian? I did 17 and a half years in the Royal Marines, followed by 12 and a half years in, in Kent Police. And what else other tours did you do apart from the uh, the Faultless Tour, Brian? Well, as a, as a musician in the Royal Marines, you don't do tours as such. You do spend 99% of your life playing music, supporting the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, uh, the, the Royal Family. Um, it's uh, without, um, without being putting too fine a point in it, like some of the army bands where you're, you're 50-50, the Royal Marine musicians are more or less full-time. But I went to go to Northern Ireland a few times, um, 
again, doing music, not 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 patrolling or um, you know in bandit country. Um, although we did go there to entertain the Marines, the uh, some of them were working up out of their pits. The bandit here, you will enjoy the concert. <laughs> but for us, um, those are the sort of um, things that we did. Was mostly music. We did the fireman strike. We did get involved with that and a few other uh, um, operational things like that, but not tours as such. Brian, what was basically trained like for a trainee bandsman in the Royal Marines? Well, we prefer the title musician, if you don't mind. The um, <gasps> putting you right on that, yeah. The um, because we are professional musicians, uh, uh, wearing the Royal Marine cap badge. Basic training was much like anyone else: a lot of square bashing, some basic weapon training, uh, and uh, getting used to being able to iron your clothes and look after yourself for the first three months. And then, then you diverge from what the, uh, the the young commandos do. Then you go each day. You go to the Royal Marine School of Music. And you practice music, and you do that for two and a half years until you're being proficient to be sent out into the big bad world. At the time I served, we had 11 Royal Marine bands around the country and a couple on ships. So there was plenty of that choice to where you might be sent. So for a young man doing music, doing a bit of shooting, doing some uh, square bashing, that, that set us off on your career as a, as a Royal Marine musician. Once you got in the band, what was sort of your life like? I take it you must have been away quite a bit. Yeah, well, my first ever draft was to HMS Ark Royal, which was a proper aircraft carrier of the 19, uh, 1970s. In fact, I was on it when they made a, a documentary called Sailor, some of the listeners might have, have watched. And uh, in January of that year, my first year uh, in a band on the Ark Royal, we were sent to the States for their bicentennial for six months. And frankly, you couldn't do a thing wrong. There I was, 19 years old. Six months later, I was 35. It was a really great time to be a young man on a ship in the States uh, during the bicentennial. So, uh, great band. And when you finish training, you've still got a lot to learn. Music comes with uh, experience. Uh, and so, after Ark Royal, I was sent to the Commando Forces Band in Plymouth. And uh, don't be mistaken by the by the title. That's just our, that was our, our hierarchy, was the Commando Forces it didn't give us any special training. We were still a Royal Marine band of musicians. But it was a great barracks to be in. The band itself was great musically, uh, socially, and plenty of good gigs we had both at home. And uh, some annual foreign trips that we got to do each year, like uh, Malta, Cyprus, uh, Germany, and even a couple of trips to the States. So uh, it was a great band to be in. And as a young man, we also had a lot of um, private work that we did. The guys formed their own little jazz and rock bands. And we uh, we took over the music scene in Plymouth, uh, playing at dances and stuff. So for a young man playing music on the road, either by plane or coaches, mostly coaches, um, it was a great, great time to be alive and a, and a great band to be in. And how often did you have to get your hands dirty with cam cream or on the rifle ranges and stuff? That like annual events, was it? Yeah, that was an annual event that the band, uh, the band of musicians didn't really uh, look forward to. I must admit, it was um, <laughs> it was something we had to do. And of course, we get on the ranges and we get some PW weapons instructor who would be giving everybody their own individual instruction on how on their on their sighting and adjusting the weapon for them. And then when he turned around, he realised we were all using the same weapons because at the end of the day, we didn't want to clean all the weapons. So the band uh, played lip service to it. Uh, our other military role was we were attached to the Royal Navy Medical Squadron on paper. And our, our wartime role was during the, the Cold War then was to um, decontaminate the wounded from any chemical, biological and nuclear contaminants. 
before they could be sent through to the doctors and operated on. And the only thing we had to do this with was the magic powder called Fuller's Earth, which was basically an inert talcum powder. So um, part of the week was spent uh, refreshing on weapons and the rest of the week was spent covering each other in, in Fuller's Earth. And that was our military training each year. But that meant that on paper we were attached to this Royal Navy Medical Squadron. So consequently, when they were summoned to go to the Falklands War, they realised they would be 40 men short, which was the band. Hence us being invited to attend the war. Going back a little bit, you said there was 11 bands in the Royal Marines. Yeah, when I joined in 1973, there were 11 Royal Marine bands. There used to be a lot more than that um, during the Second World War. Every capital ship had a small Royal Marine band on it, and all the major shore establishments did. It was one of the reasons, actually, why we lost so many Royal Marine musicians during the Second World War, because their action station was uh, below deck in, in the, uh, the magazines or the plotting stations, below many decks of uh, waterside doors. So whenever we lost a capital ship, we invariably lost a Royal Marine, the whole band. So there used to be a lot more Royal Marine musicians, uh, but um, when I joined the Re 11, uh, and there are, there are far fewer now. I think there are about five at this time. And how big is that, is that? How big is a Royal Marine band? Depending on the size of the band, I mean, by that, I mean, staff bands are bigger, perhaps 50 or 60 people, um, and the ordinary bands, they're usually 40, 45. So it's a big organisation then, really, you know, for the core. It the is Navy. quite a big organisation. I guess it takes up a lot of uh, money and resources, resources. but luckily all our uh, Commandant Generals and uh, politicians realise that actually what a good job they do in terms of public yeah. relations and keeping the name of the Corps at the front. I know we have this um, this, this, this Corps pissed attitude, they, they call it, where um, the cat badge comes to the fore, but the, the commandos think they're the best at being, um, being roughly tufties. And the band service think we are the best military band service in the world. And it sort of comes through, I think, in, in the training and how they conduct themselves. Well, you saw it at the coronation at the weekend, how the importance of the bands, you know, adds that colour to the spectacle, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and although um, I, I talk about, in my book, I talk about cat badge rivalry. Um, when we deal with some of the other musicians in the RF and the Army, they've also got some great standards and some great musicians. This, um, it's one of the things that joins us together. But yes, seeing the coronation recently and uh, the way that the military and especially the bands performed uh, was awe-inspiring. We covered a number of episodes on the Falklands War, namely a two-part episode with three-para veteran Jimmy Moran on the Battle for Mount Longdon, and an episode with Brum Richards on 148 and naval gunfire during the campaign. Both were excellent, highly recommended, and we covered a lot of ground. And before we get to the, the anniversary for the victory in, in the Falklands, do listen to him again. So, Brian, what was your thoughts when you got warned off for operations and what was your journey south like on the Cambria, which, as you know, was known as the Great White Whale? Before I say that, I, just, I would say to um, people listening um, about cat badge rivalry that you mentioned the paras there. Um, on the Canberra, they were very professional in the way they trained alongside the Marines. And uh, I, I was in awe of the way these young men were ready to go ashore and, and do the dirty business of war. So this is not all about the, the Greenberry Marines. Uh, I do have uh, a lot of respect for, for the parachute regiment I met on the Canberra. For me, I was warned off for war. It was the start of Easter leave. Uh, the band had all gone off, and I lived just across the water from Plymouth in Cornwall, and I had a whole lot of private civilian gigs at a holiday camp lined up. And uh, we were recorded to the barracks 
in Sternhaus, and we assumed, the band, we assumed that um, we would be guarding the barracks whilst those roughy tufty uh, commandos went off and sorted out the um, the Argentines. But as I said earlier, the um, when the medical squadron were getting their act together, they realised that they would be um, 40 men short. And so uh, that's when the band, the boss came out uh, of the band room and stood on the podium where we'd normally conduct the rehearsal and say, um, in 48 hours' time, we are going to Southampton. We're going to join the Great White Whale, a.k.a. the Canberra, the P&O cruise ship that had been uh, commandeered by the Ministry of Defence. And uh, we'll be going to war. So that rather put paid to my Easter leave gigs, not least of which I hated because I had to give them away to a civilian drummer who I didn't really like. So I lost a lot of money and a lot of kudos. And what was the, did you actually think it was going to happen when this news went round? It was all just a bit of, this is never going to happen. We'll never actually head anywhere. Well, initially it was quite excitement. The quartermasters all opened their stores and we got our hands on all sorts of equipment that uh, people wouldn't normally get their hands on, especially musicians. But we made our way to Southampton and uh, joined this ship. And there were a couple of thousand Royal Marines and uh, one of the parachute regiments on board. And they were uh, busy trying to outdo each other in the heavy backpack competition. And um, really, it was quite exciting to find that um, we, we were going off to war, but no one really thought it was going to happen. So we had all the kudos of sailing in this great big task force. But there was a big American uh, diplomatic effort going on at the time. Uh, Haig, uh, his name was, was shuttling between uh, Buenos Aires and London, trying to find a solution. But the Argentines wouldn't budge. But we figured, given a few weeks, once we all sailed and put pressure on the Argentines, then actually they would cave in. And we'd be back from this cruise with a tan a story and probably a medal. So although we started training on the way down militarily and medically uh, and physically uh, doing runs around the deck, I don't think at that point anyone really thought it would become a shooting war. And what did your medical training consist of? Because that was going to be a main role. Although um, we weren't medically trained as such, there's not much you can do to it with a, a sucking chest wound with a bag of full as earth. But actually, you, um, we did have a lot of uh, training from Surgeon Commander Rick Jolly, who I think we're going to talk about later, and his medical team. And we were shown uh, Vietnam films of actual operations to try and um, desensitize us, I suppose, to what we might see and deal with. Uh, we did lots of exercises on the ship. The band were given the job of unloading the wounded from helicopters when they came aboard. And so we had to devise a way to get them from the helicopter deck down to the hospital facility on the Canberra. Although Canberra was a troop ship and not a hospital ship, she did have um, the medical squadron and she did have a good hospital facility. So we were always expecting to get some casualties of some sort. The training went on each day. There was some physical training around the decks. The Marines and the Paras entered into an unofficial competition, with, especially the mortar teams. As the, water, as the weather got hotter as we reached the equator, they were doing seven or eight miles around the deck with their mortar plates on their back and stuff. So um, it was quite, it was quite light-hearted. It was quite. Um, we never really thought it was going to come to much. The first uh, offensive action, though, was taken when we went into Sierra Leone, into Freetown, because for whatever reason, it was decided we were going there to refuel and restock. And it was a horrible port. It was one of those very um, petroleum ports, and the smell was overpowering. And Canberra docked. And alongside came all these native uh, bum boats to sell us uh, trinkets and furs. Some of the uh, some of the guys managed to lower a bucket and buy themselves a little monkey, which they hoisted up and put a, a woolly pulley jumper on it. And uh, 
it was on the deck for a little while before one of the senior officers. I think I think he felt um, intimidated that the monkey outranked him in some way. <laughs> but he said, uh, if in case it bites somebody, and then the disease would go through the fighting troops, and we'd be very inefficient. He ordered the the, the monkey to be sent ashore without a pension, which I thought was a, a bit unfair. But because we were bar- barred from uh, dealing with the bumboats, they um, they decided to use the one word of Spanish they knew, which was. Um, Malvinas, which of course is the Argentine word for the Falklands. So having marked themselves as a target, first of all, they were hosed down with fire hoses, but in the heat, that wasn't really a punishment. And I think it was one of the Paris lads who um, actually did the first offensive action of the war by dropping a, a fully loaded uh, fire extinguisher down 60 feet and hold the bumboat, causing it to sink. So we claim that as the first offensive action of the Falklands War. <laughs> did the monkey survive? Yeah, the monkey wasn't in that boat, actually. <laughs> oh, thankfully. So. <laughs> we'll have the animal cruelty people onto this, Brian. When did it dawn that actually you were going to war, you were turning back round, that you were going to go to the Falklands? Well, I think to um, put more pressure on, the, the, the task force was sailing relatively slowly, and our next port of call was Ascension Island, which is right on the equator. It's a giant um, volcanic rock. With uh, the only thing on it really is uh, an American airbase. I can't remember if we lease it to them or they lease it to us. But the, either way, they opened it up and the task force surrounded the, the island and all the hastily loaded um, stores were moved ar- around the correct ships, as it were. Uh, and we were there for about two weeks, as it happens. And um, after about day three, a signal came through that there was a credible uh, submarine threat. Uh, which worried the band because at that point um, we were all living below the waterline. And um, so each night Canberra would sail and zigzag throughout the night, arriving back at Ascension in the morning. But it was a, it was a lovely place, Ascension, I mean, in terms of weather, not in terms of uh, scenery. But we were there enjoying the sun, doing some training, doing a bit of playing ashore. The band actually went ashore to play. But the troops themselves, the paras and the marines, uh, were getting a bit fractious with each other. They were young, testosterone-filled uh, soldiers. Uh, they were getting frustrated, and there was a bit of pigtail pulling and uh, handbag swinging in the bars. So our boss, uh, uh, John Ware, decided we'd break out our instruments and start performing on the ship in the evening when we weren't doing our own duties. So we broke down into a, a jazz quartet and a rock band and a military band, of course, and we went into all the different bars and messes to try and soothe the savage beasts which I think helped a little bit. We were the only uh, crapats, as the as the, not the as the paras call anyone without a red berry, allowed in their mess uh, to play for them. And uh, they grumbled when we went in because we were in our Royal Marine uniform. But luckily our um, musical um, pianist, Bruno, had arranged the Ride of the Valkyries as a funky jazz number, which is then <laughs> a regiment march. So we started with that. And after that, we couldn't do a thing wrong. And... Uh, by the time we'd left, we'd accompanied all their airborne songs and left them singing and punching each other for fun. Bless them. <laughs> so, uh, good times. So then um, we were doing this to sort of uh, keep morale up, and I think we did a pretty good job of that. And then I forget the actual day, but then a signal came through telling us that um, the Argentine ship, the General Belgrano, had been sunk by one of our submarines. And, of course, that was, um, it was a bit of a surprise, a bit of a shock. I think initially there was a bit of elation from young men, but then we realised that we were also at that point all sailors and we also had family people. And of course, I'm referring back to the start of the podcast when I told you about my own father being killed. There was already one 
uh, Royal Marine headstone with my name on it, uh, if you like, because I actually had his name. So I was wondering if there was going to be another one. So um, it seemed going to be quite serious. We did have some concerns, you know, that um, we'd been shadowed by a submarine. Uh, and then a few days later, HMS Sheffield was hit by Exocet, and we lost about 20 sailors. And, of course, ultimately the ship sank. So we knew then we were not in this for a one-all draw. All the task force upsticked, and we slowly made our way with more uh, purpose towards the Falklands proper to make the landing and uh, kick, kick the Argentines off the islands. What sort of briefings were you getting, Brian? Were you being kept up to date by your officers and getting good briefings on, on the situation? Yeah, because we're in, uh, there was no internet then, there was no mobile phones. We were in a sterile security environment, so we were kept up to date both by Sergeant Commander Jolly uh, on on the daily running of the up the war, but also by um, Captain Byrne, Royal Navy. Uh, Canberra had two captains. She had a, a civilian captain, Scott Masson, and we also had a Royal Navy uh, captain, Captain Byrne, who was a very uh, a lovely guy and a very well spoken public British public schoolboy. And he kept us up to date with um, all the information that he had from signals because there's no way we could tell anyone. And so we were very well informed. And then each evening we would listen to the BBC Home Service, which would start with the, a tune called Lily Bolero that we knew. And then we would get the news from London. But underneath, in between, we were filled in the gaps by, by Captain Byrne and Surgeon Commander Jolly. So at what point then did you know that you were going into Falkland Sound? I, th- I think, was it Falkland Sound the Canberra went into? And the- That's San Carlos Bay, yeah. So what point did you hear about that? And uh, what sort of role did you have during the landings? So about two days before the landings, which happened on the 21st of May, which was our D-Day, there was a lot of activity on the ship. A lot of officers were flying back and forth between Canberra and the Fal- and the HMS Fearless, which was uh, where the headquarters was at the time. Uh, and then uh, Sergeant Commander Jolly called an O group uh, where he gave us all uh, the lowdown on the, the uh, actual landings which were going to happen. Uh, for us, we were always going to go ashore with the medical squadron and, and do whatever they needed us to do. But at the last minute, it was decided that half the band would go and then some would be going to Goose Green. Um, it was very much the fog of war and the last minute decision making. But the very last thing that happened... Just before the um, the band were due to go ashore, we started taking Argentine prisoners of war, and I'll come on to how in a minute, walking wounded. And so it was decided the band would stay on board as, as the main and only military unit left on board once we put our troops ashore. So then about 40 hours before uh, D-Day, Sergeant Commander Jolly gave us his O-group and uh, gave us all our individual uh, section instructions. And I say for us, it was a, a matter of changing here and there until eventually we realised we were going to be on the Canberra for the whole of the experience. So on the 21st of May, uh, very early in the morning, we went in overnight, and uh, it's a relatively small bay, about the same size as, as Plymouth Sound, for those uh, who know that my hometown of Plymouth. And uh, as the dawn broke, there were all these uh, ships, mostly Royal Navy ships, but there was the Norland Ferry, there was the Canberra, several other civilian ships, and it was a beautiful spring morning. And uh, we started getting our troops ashore in various ways, helicopters, landing craft. Uh, and uh, it was all going swimmingly until mid-morning when the Argentine Air Force showed up and started bombing and uh, strafing the ships all around us. And they were very skillful and determined pilots, Argentinians, very brave. Uh, and I remember talking to Jimmy when he did a, we did the podcast with him, and he couldn't wait to get off those ships. So I'd imagine the thought of staying on the Canberra for the duration of the war wouldn't have been very appealing to you. 
No, it was quite frightening because once those air raids started, uh, most of our duties were on deck receiving the wounded and Argentine prisoners of war and, and some of the dead, which, I, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it was a real cacophony of sound and sight and very surreal. There was On Canberra, we had 26 GPMG machine guns strapped to the rails, handheld blowpipe missiles going off. Every ship was firing its missiles and its main guns. Even on some ships, the NAFI manager had an SLR taking pot shots. And these Argentine planes have flown all the way from the mainland, very low to avoid Harrier and radar pickets, come in over the, the headland and then had very, just had seconds to find themselves the target, line up and drop their bombs. And uh, with all this wall of lead and missiles going up at them, it was very surreal uh, experience, uh, very frightening for a young man, uh, but we all had uh, our duties to do, so you, you tended to put it to the back of your mind. But to watch um, ships actually being hit and planes being blown out of the sky was, was absolutely uh, amazing, doesn't quite cover it. But we had our own duties to do, and at that point, we my team was uh, the duty um, helicopter deck team, uh, and the uh, helicopter flew in, and it was Surgeon Commander Jolly, and with it he, in the back, he, he motioned us to the chopper. Uh, and unfortunately, there were four dead Royal Marine air crewmen uh, in the back, one of which I knew. Uh, I knew Andy Evans, that he'd shown me around his helicopter. I was a bit of a, uh, a helicopter spotter. And two uh, yeah, small um, gazelle helicopters had been shot down by the Argentines. Um, a headland had, uh, had not been um, cleared. And they'd shot down two of the helicopters. One crashed and killed both people. But Andy Evans had managed to alterate his helicopter into the water. And it was when him and his crew when we were swimming ashore, they were shot at by the uh, Argentines and he was killed. Well, he was mortally wounded and, and, and died a, a few minutes later ashore. So for me then, the Argentines became the enemy. Uh, the real sea change for me to suddenly be dealing uh, with the body of someone who I knew and, and liked. So that was quite a, an eye-opener. It was a real. It was very much a real war then, for, for, even for us. Bear in mind, my war wasn't the dirty war that uh, the Paris, the Marines, and the soldiers uh, fought, sure. But even for me, as a young musician, that was a war enough. Which is why it annoys me sometimes. People say um, the Falklands wasn't a war, and some pedantic um, people say it wasn't clear as a war. But I think it's a bit like love. It's in the eye of the beholder. If you're getting shot at and someone's trying to kill you, then it's it's bloody war, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, semantics, isn't it? It's just war wasn't declared in all but everything else. It was definitely a war. So we we take down the bodies of our fallen comrades uh, and then more helicopters start arriving with wounded and walking wounded Argentines and they need to be dealt with. So the band are issued weapons and then we start having to guide uh, these uh, Argentine troops. Uh, some of them were from the um, the battle at Top Marlow House uh, and they weren't conscripts. They were special forces. And uh, there's a picture of some of these guys in my book. They they needed special looking after. Uh, they didn't actually cause us any trouble, but we knew they weren't just ordinary conscripts like some of the others we'd seen. So they needed careful looking after and monitoring and guarding with weapons and uh, made it very clear to them what they could and couldn't do uh, without attracting our attention. So all day long, we're receiving um, more uh, walking wounded, more and more air raids. Uh, we're getting a full commentary from Captain Byrne, our Royal Navy captain up on the bridge. And it's just absolute chaos and a cacophony and a surreal experience to see what's happening uh, all around us in this relatively small bay. I say relatively small because uh, with the amount of ships inside, 
And of course, as I said earlier, all credit to the Argentine Air Force who were coming in within a few seconds having to pick a target, pickle their bombs off. And in fact, I think one of the one of the good things about us putting up so much lead was that they flew so very low to avoid all that, that it didn't give enough time for the bombs to arm once they'd left the aircraft. So uh, quite often they would hit, hit a ship, but the bomb wouldn't go off. Uh, and that's when, of course, uh, our bomb disposal people earned their money, bless them going and uh, managed to save a couple of the ships because the bombs hadn't exploded. Yeah, there's quite a hoo-ha, because if I remember right, I think Kev might correct me on this, but I think the BBC let out the bag that a lot of the bombs weren't exploding because their pilots were coming in that low, as you were saying, and they, they were being there fused. Few, there were fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, they did, and, and it, it never got addressed or picked up by the Argentinians at the time. Just going back slightly, if I, if I may, the NAFIA manager, there's a guy called John Leake, he was a soldier, but he became an enough manager on HMS Ardent. Uh, he manned the machine gun. He was accredited to shoot down the Skyhawk on a ship on the Ardent, which was hit by 17 missiles and bombs. And he was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. Yeah, there are a lot of um, civilians in the Falklands. I mean, on the camera, most of the crew stayed on board, most of the civilian crew, including some of the, the women. They tried to get them to go ashore ascension, but they refused. So they were facing the same dangers as, as we as we were. But, um, well, of course, we'd taken the Queen shilling, and we could be expected to be put in harm's way. But they'd all volunteered to stay on board, and all credit to the civilians who, who did that. Yeah, that's a little-known aspect of that, and I only learned about that a couple of years ago. Yeah, on the camera, there was only one officer, uh, apparently a genuine conscientious objector, who said, no, this is not for me. Uh, but everyone else uh, stayed on board, and all credit to them, and uh, many of them are still friends of mine now, and uh, because we got to know them, because we were on the ship for the whole of the uh, of the war, from beginning to end, and a little bit beyond. Uh, and we also went back a year later for a working cruise as musicians, now uh, we know a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the civilians, and uh, again, all credit to them. They didn't really have to be there. When these prisoners and the wounded were coming aboard, Brian, were they sorted and treated immediately on site? What happened to them after that? Were they transferred to some other ship, or did they stay with you guys? No, they stayed with us for for the for the first part. Unless the, if there were a couple of seriously wounded ones who we had to. Um, that they were patched up on board Canberra and then set off to Uganda, which was the real hospital ship which was anchored uh, not too far off the islands. So, um, But anyone who was walking wounded um, or just a prisoner, we kept with us and we set up uh, several rooms. There were, um, obviously being a cruise ship, there were several big public rooms uh, that would normally be theatres and uh, cinemas. So they were set up as wards and um, and places where we could keep the prisoners and have a, a relatively few people to look after them. So usually two or three of us would be guarding maybe 40 or 50 uh, of these Argentines, but they had to stay with us. We had nowhere to put them at the time, uh, and uh, there was nothing else we could do but keep them and guard them and keep uh, and keep the ship keep the security of the ship safe. It's interesting you're talking about the powers of the Marines earlier because I put some questions out on our uh, Twitter account, and one of our followers at Madly DOV asked uh, a couple of questions about the makeup of the units that went down there. So obviously you had three commando brigade and five brigade as well. The question you asked was, why wasn't the Ace Mobile Force Battalion sent out there when it was Arctic trained and equipped? And why did 5 Brigade go out there? So I read a book recently by Ian Gardner, who was a, a Royal Marine Rifle Company commander in the battle, and his experience was taken down in the book The Yompers with 4-5 Commando in the Falklands War. And basically he was outlining that, that between leaving the UK and arriving in the Falklands, 5 Infantry Brigade went from a garrison force 
meant to populate the islands after the war to a fighting force and wasn't properly trained or equipped. It had already had two units taken out of it, two and three para, which were attached to three commando brigade, and in their place was slotted the Welsh and the Scots guards. There was a documentary on last year, I don't know if you saw it, Brian, about Five Brigade and the brigade commander Tony Wilson got quite a slating on it. Did you see that, Kev, that documentary? Yeah. I was quite surprised I mean, how much just, Hasley got from yeah, other officers. They, they definitely said he was out of his depth on the, on the whole thing. Yeah. It's it's worth a watch. It's still on iPlayer, I believe, as well. So it's yeah, I did, watch. I did see it and I was quite surprised just how much of a slating a senior officer got from uh, fellow regimental officers uh, uh, from the same unit. So... Uh, yeah, it was a surprise. And for us, we, uh, on Canberra, after D-Day, and we'd got all our troops ashore, it was decided to withdraw the Canberra. And then we then had to make for uh, South Georgia, where we were going to meet with um, the QE-2, the Cunard ship, which was carrying five brigade. So we had to make our way there at full speed in the in the, uh, the worsening weather. And the only time we slowed down was to... Uh, to um, take part in uh, burials at sea for the four Royal Marines who had died. Unfortunately, uh, Canberra had no storage facilities suitable and there was still no end in sight for the war. So, um, cold and miserable day, one of the big doors was opened in the side of Canberra and everyone off duty um, turned up to pay our respects. Uh, The band played some hymns and our buglers played last post as we committed um, our our warriors to the deep. That must have been quite... uh... I mean, it's a very traditional way of burying people. It was, um, must have been quite a poignant thing to do that, Brian. It was sad, it was poignant, it was emotional, um, but it was done with full honours and, and with full respect to our fallen comrades. And uh, it, must be diff- it must be difficult for the families uh, not to have their bodies back, but it was done uh, uh, with as much uh, dignity could, as could be. So once that was over, uh, we then made our way to South Georgia where we met up with them. Um, with Fire Brigade. It was our first real dealings with the, the army, if you like. Uh, we'd had the, uh, we knew the Marines, we were part of it. We met the Paris and we'd oh, hats off to them for their uh, professionalism and training we'd seen on the Canberra and the way they'd, uh, especially with someone to butt up against on the Canberra, the Royal Marines, those two, you know, were setting each other up just right. It was one of the pros of cat badge rivalry, which I discuss at great length, actually, in my book, which I'm sure you'll ask me about at some point. <laughs> While we're on it, Brian, I mean, what are the pros and cons of cat badge rivalry from, from what you saw in the Falklands? Well, I think it sets people up. You know, it gives you an identity, red hat, crab hat, greenberry. It gives you that identity. It gives you that core history, your regimental history. You're not just fighting and representing yourself. You're representing two, three, four hundred years of, uh, of history and reputation. And so I think in some regards, it, it, it does help motivate the military man to do things that perhaps he wouldn't, his body's telling him not to do. But he looks around him and he sees his, his comrades who he's fighting for and his cat badge and he gets up out of that trench and does it. To me, that's that's what I saw and that's why I, I recognise. Even in a small way, as a Royal Marine wearing the Royal Marine cat badge, uh, we applied, say, musical intellect to our duties, but we're also doing it with that... Um, Royal Marine cap badge. So I think the combination for us, even in a small way, was important. So we make our way to South Georgia. We meet up with the uh, the Queen Elizabeth II and Fire Brigade. And then suddenly we're, uh, we have this uh, very army. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it, it's very different to us. Their, their rank structure was very strict. You couldn't just go and speak to one of their sergeants. You had to speak to uh, a lance corporal who would go up the rank structure. You couldn't speak to a captain. And we were used to running the ship. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Suddenly we had, you know, a, a whole regiment on board or about a fire brigade, as it was called. And they were very different. The guy, anyone who went ashore deserves uh, the full respect for, for having to, to dig deep and fight those battles at night uh, against uh, an entrenched enemy. And they'd been there several weeks, you know, waiting for us. And they outnumbered our guys. So uh, I, I wouldn't uh, discredit them in any way. Could you see the battles taking place on the land? Could you see like, weapons fire, artillery go down? Were you able to see that from the ship when you were in, in San Carlos? On, overnight on D-Day, on the 20th, 21st, yes. When we snuck in at night, we um, into the bay and dropped anchor. Uh, and uh, we, were t- we were told not to go outside, but we went, a couple of us went on the open deck. Uh, the ship was in blackout. We'd had all these, uh, what, what would normally be um, passenger windows, had to be uh, covered up with Hessian. But we made our way out onto the open deck. And it was a beautiful, clear night, and there was no, absolutely no light pollution. So there was this cornucopia of, of stars, some of which perhaps we'd never seen before in the southern hemisphere. And we could see the outline of the islands. And then um, there was a loud bang, and one of the Navy ships behind us started firing, which uh, really frightened myself and a young uh, musician, Smith. And so we fought our way through the door to get back into the ship before Captain Burns said, that's just one of our ships doing uh, naval gun, gunfire support. So we went back out and on Fanning Head, which is where the um, which is where the, the initial battle took place, we could see GPMG fire going up and down as our troops slowly advanced up, taking care of the Fanning Fanning Hill mob they were known as. Uh, and fortunately, they they dislodged them because they were the ones who could have opposed the the landings. But a small group of them escaped, and it was some of this group that the next day shot down the uh, the Royal uh, Marine and like helicopters uh, killed Andy Evans. So um, mixed bag, really. So that, that was the, the battle we could see on that first night. By the time we came back with Fire Brigade, uh, the breachhead had been established and uh, the, the battles were moved farther in. Uh, the paras had been to Goose Green and the Marines were yelping across the island. So there was nothing to be seen as much then. You mentioned that you had a bit of animosity towards the enemy after your friend was killed, but... There's quite an interesting incident with Argentine prisoners that where a menu card was signed and they were grateful for how you looked after them. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, because after we'd established a routine where we were guiding these guys, musical intellect, if you like, the drummer in me with, with my sense of humour, realised that actually they were people like us. A lot of them were conscripts and uh, they were pleased to be alive. They were told that we would kill them. They were told that the Gurkhas would eat them anything at all by their government to um, keep them there fighting. So they were relieved, A, to be on board of the, the Canberra and C, getting medical treatment. 
So actually, for the most part, there was very little um, trouble uh, with them. Uh, and one night I was, uh, it must have been when we'd taken five brigade back in and we were anchored overnight in San Carlos Bay. Uh, a very, in the middle of the night, the door burst open and a young Royal Marine lieutenant came in. He was, he was carrying his weapon. He had can cream on still. So he'd come straight from ashore, apparently back to the ship for some R&R, &R, a quick uh, meal and a shower. And his, his eyes were wide open, and he said, are these enemy prisoners? And I, and I went, yes, sir, they're Argentines. He said, they're enemy prisoners. And I wouldn't say there was a standoff, but there was a, an awkward 30 seconds where he just looked around the room at these prisoners, and they looked back at him, and then he left. So what was going on in his mind at that time, I'm, I'm glad it stayed there, because it was a strange, strange feeling with being a, a, a young rural marine musician with a gun facing a young Royal Marine lieutenant who had something on his mind. He'd obviously been ashore and uh, lost people. Yeah, that was, a bit, that was a very strange uh, and surreal experience for me to, to deal with. In fact, I didn't deal with it. I just stood there, and uh, thank goodness he just decided to leave. Well, whatever was on his mind was um, was dark, and uh, I'm glad it stayed there. It must have been quite surreal for him as well, though. One minute he's on a, a bare top hill uh, with his soldiers fighting, and then he's in a a ship where there's no immediate threat from the enemy, as in you know soldiers, but you know there is the air threat. So and then he's come across the people he's maybe been fighting earlier. So I can imagine he had quite a bit of dislocation of his own experience at that point. Yes, and he would have been ashore for at least a week at that point, fighting and living rough. So uh, and you know what that does to people. So uh, yeah, very strange, but uh, another another memorable moment in the war for me. So uh, war's come to an end. Our troops ashore have done all the dirty business of war and they're, um, the, the war is won. And we hear that on the ship and we're, we're quite elated. Uh, and then suddenly with all the Argentine prisoners of war ashore, they're, um, they're shivering really and, and, and uh, freezing in the southern hemisphere winter, which is now starting to approach. So the Canberra and the northern, the North Sea Ferry, the Norland, were with the only available uh, facilities. So suddenly we got four or 5,000 of these Argentine prisoners of war on board the ship, put into these uh, cabins. Uh, we did get some Welsh guards to assist, and they, they they guarded each end of the corridors, these long corridors with the, with the troops in, with the prisoners in. Uh, and we did our best to look after them, but suddenly there was the ship was then suddenly full of the gunnels with these people. Their government didn't want them back. But they have eventually, because of the, the Red Cross and the Geneva Convention, agreed they could be taken home, providing it was on the civilian ships, which obviously Canberra and uh, the Norland were. So we set sail for Argentina to return the, to return the Argentine uh, troops home. And the night before we docked in Argentina, and some of the guides, some of the people I was guiding asked for pen and paper. And the only thing I had was the cover of a, a Canberra posh restaurant menu so uh, I, I gave them that in the pen and about an hour later they um, they gave it back to me and it was signed uh, with, with many different versions of the word thank you and thanks for looking after us in Spanish and in English and uh, I think I still think it rates as the most unusual war souvenir to come back with and that's a, a signed thank you card from the enemy so it was quite touching to have this card and uh, I still have it now and about a year ago, just after my book was published, an Argentine historian has found about 15 of the 20 signatories. 
And in 2024, uh, I believe I'm going to go to Argentina and have a reunion with, with some of these guys. So it's got a positive end to come out of a nasty little war from 1982. Uh, not everyone will get that uh, release. That, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That's uh, closure. Closure, that's the word, yeah. That, uh, so um, I'm quite looking forward to, to, to doing that. We docked in Argentina, in Puerto Madryn. That was quite surreal again, going into an enemy port. Well, technically, we were still at war with them because they'd only surrendered on the islands. And we were told that uh, under no circumstances set foot ashore, Canberra is neutral territory under the Geneva Convention. But unfortunately, or fortunately, um, carrying a stretcher, stepped across the chasm, and I suddenly am the front right-hand marker of a four-man Argentine stretcher party. And uh, we go about 100 yards to where the waiting ambulances are. And we put this uh, stretcher in the back of an ambulance. And the Argentine, much to everyone's surprise, around uh, in the ambulance, then shook my hand and said, gracias. Uh, and, um, yeah, of course, he was one of these guys who had signed my card. But uh, for the Argentines who hadn't been in the war, waiting for this, the prisoner wars to come home, it's something of a surprise. They couldn't understand it. So then I go back to the bottom of the gangway where uh, there's an Argentine general um, greeting his men back. And I decided it's a good opportunity to take my camera and take a picture. And then behind me, one of the Argentine officers decided to give me a bollocking in Spanish. Now, I don't speak of Spanish, but I know a bollocking when I only hear one. <laughs> so I've had many in my time. Uh, and so I offered him a few words of Anglo-Saxon that he might have understood. <laughs> and then before I was arrested, I skipped back up the gangway and back to the safety of Canberra. Wait, I didn't realise that Canberra went to Argentina just at the end of the war to drop the prisoners off. It might be good, Brian, next year if we get you back on and uh, you could maybe uh, talk about your reunion and the experience of that. I think that'd be quite interesting. Yeah, I'd be pleased to if you find if you think it's uh, got some value. There's a, a British retired colonel called Geoffrey Cordoza. During and after the war, he went to great lengths to keep... Argentine bodies and artifacts together so that at some point they could be identified because there are a lot of ba uh, battlefield casualties that, that couldn't be identified. So he gave closure, if you like, to many Argentine families after the war where he was able to say, well, look, this is your son, this is where he's buried. And consequently, he's been invited back uh, several times. And I believe I'm going to be invited back with a, a British delegation in the new year sometime. So, yeah, if you think it's got value, then I'd be happy to come back and talk about that. Yeah, that'd be good. So one of the books that Colin and I have discussed on the Falklands War was The Red and Green Life Machine by Surgeon Commander Rick Jolly, who was decorated by both sides of the Trims of the Wounded, which is the only person I'm aware of during the Falklands War that was awarded uh, honours from the Argentinians as well as the British forces. I believe you met him, Brian. What was he like? Yeah, he was our he was our immediate boss, if you like. We had our own band rank structure, but as far as the medical squadron were concerned, he was our, our our boss and gave us all our briefings, lots of medical lectures. And he was actually very charismatic, funny, intelligent, and a real gentleman. And he's one of those few officers you would follow anywhere. He um, his word was gospel, and uh, he he knew his stuff. Uh, we were part of his setup, and. Uh, We'd have gone ashore with him had we been required, but it was him who made the decision to leave the, the band on board as the military unit in the end. But they're a great bloke, and um, I think his great boast was that um, everyone who made it into his field hospital left alive. If they arrived alive, they left alive. 
Unfortunately, the the Reading Relay Life Machine tells the story of the the, the mash type hospital unit ashore, and they were at Ajax Bay, um, a refrigerated an old refrigeration unit, and the Argentines bombed them, uh, killing several Marines. And unfortunately, um, bombs lodged in the wall of the operating theater that they'd set up uh, and didn't go off. So just being the sort of guy he was, they just worked around them. So, and an incredible guy. And uh, about, about three or four years ago, I, I went back to Plymouth and Tor Point in Cornwall, and I was just walking down the high street there, uh, and he recognized me. I saw him, I recognized him, he recognized me. Of course, he couldn't, he didn't know my name. Um, but we stopped and chatted. He was ever the gent even then. But but sadly, uh, a couple of years ago, um, he, he died. But he was honoured by, obviously, the, the Her Majesty the Queen and the South Atlantic Medal Association, and also by the Argentines for the work he did in, in the medical treatment of the Argentine prisoners of war. And for civilian listeners that might not know, in the Red and Green Life Machine, as in any operational theatre, it doesn't matter if you it's the enemy or your own side, the wounded are treated in the priority required. So you, you would have had Argentinians getting treatment before British soldiers or Marines because their wounds were that serious. Yes, it's all about the triage, the initial um, examination and deciding who needs the most urgent treatment. So as you say, it wasn't the British who got the, the first treatment. It was whichever patient needed it, and, and rightly so. What was your journey home like? Well, having uh, taken the Argentine... Uh, prisoners of war back to Argentina once they'd gone off the ship we suddenly had no duties whatsoever so uh, we made quick time back to the Falklands and because Maggie Thatcher and the government wanted a big celebration back in London as soon as possible uh, Canberra was loaded up uh, with all the Royal Marine units we didn't bring any paras back with us they were taken back on other ships and Canberra was ordered uh, to make um, due haste north back to the England as quickly as she could. Now, we had one day ashore in uh, Port Stanley where we played at a Thanksgiving service for the um, the locals, the, 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 the Falkland Islanders, before we reboarded the Canberra and headed north. And there was something of a party atmosphere going up home. The, the guys, obviously the fighting troops, they had to decompress, although we didn't have a word for it back then. Um, there was lots of beer. The band were in great demand, playing in all the different bars and messes, the officers' mess, the senior NCO's mess, playing jazz for the young lads. Um, and we put on some concerts, in which some of the young lads, uh, 4-2 Commando, put on a, a toga party. Uh, and they'd written some words on the way down to uh, we're all going on a summer holiday. And they performed them with the band. So there was a, there was a, there was a great party atmosphere, but it was, but it was tinged with sadness because not everyone who'd gone south with us was now going north. So um, the South Atlantic Fund had been set up to raise money for the, those injured and families of those killed. So every day we had some sort of event which would help raise money for the um, for the injured and the families of those who were not coming back. So tinged with sadness, but relief that um, we were going home as quickly as possible. And it took about 10 days to get back. Uh, we nearly ran out of beer, but they, <laughs> they slowed down at Ascension Island and more beer was flown on board the ship. And I can say it's the only working party I'd been involved in during the war where we had more people than we needed. <laughs> Everybody uh, was told, if you want more beer, get up on the flight deck for this uh, versatile transfer of, of, um, of beer. 
we carried on. The other thing that came on at Ascension was a, a sort of working party, uh, not a working party, a um, an entertainment party of um, young girls and singers and dancers and a comedian. And they were suddenly plunked amongst us to do shows and entertain the troops. So quite surreal for them and, and something for us as well. Um, as professional musicians ourselves, we were able to accompany them. And there's a mark of sort of respect by the by the captain of the Canberra and the crew, because we'd been on board for the entire uh, enterprise, uh, they put on a surprise party for the band with dances, with a cake, with beer, with a tune called uh, Putting on the Ritz, which had a great big tap dancing solo in the middle. And at that point, uh, the bands, we all got up and did the tap dancing thing badly. Um, it's what dancing used to look like back in the end. <laughs> and even the officers uh, joined in. And uh, for us, it was quite a, quite a moment. It meant our duties sort of had come to an end. And uh, we were just back to being musicians. There's a tradition in the Royal Navy called Up Channel Night. And every British Royal Navy ship that's returned home to Plymouth or Falmouth or Portsmouth has to come around the corner after the Bay of Biscay. And they have an up-channel night um, event, ceremony, if you like. Normally on a Royal Navy ship, it'd be drinking in a game of uckers, which is like Ludo for sailors. Uh, but on camera, because we were the Royal Marine Band, we did a formal beat retreat uh, on the one of the helicopter decks, surrounded by thousands of Royal Marines, and all singing Land of Hope and Glory at the end, last post. And then we headed up the, uh, up the channel, and overnight we went around the Isle of Wight, and we were told that actually there would be a big reception committee waiting for us, but there's nothing like we we were expecting. Uh, we were on the forward flight deck playing, and as we turned into the Solent, there were hundreds and hundreds of small ships and planes and helicopters surrounding us, and uh, about thirty-five thousand people on the on the jetty to welcome us back. And the, we, the band of the Royal Marines Commando Forces, played on the front of the uh, the Canberra until the, uh, the the ropes were across, and then the boss cut us off, and the band ashore took over, and that was the end of our official duties on the Canberra. Well, that was really uh, interesting, Ryan. Thanks for taking us through that. And your experiences of war, if you like, weren't just limited to Falklands, because in 1987 you were posted to, to deal which I think was the Royal Marines Music School as an instructor. And you were there when it was bombed by the IRA and it has killed 11 Royal Marine uh, band members and wounded a further 21. That's pretty grim. How did that affect you following your experiences in the Falklands? Well, um, it's, it's really hard to get head around it still, to be honest. In 1987, as you say, um, I was sent to deal in Kent, which is where I live now. The barracks is closed. But it was the, uh, the Royal Marine School of Music. Very much a soft target because uh, we had trained musicians here. None of the commandos came here anymore. It was just the Royal Marine School of Music and the staff band. And then one one sad day um, in, in 1989, um, I'm late for work. I'm just getting out of the shower and I hear the, uh, the, the bomb go off. So I quickly get dressed and cycle down the hill. Uh, and the, the, the band room was partly attached to a, an old church. And it was completely demolished. And I bumped into uh, the, Bob was the violin professor. And uh, he said, oh, there's been a gas explosion. But there was a particular smell in the air that I recognised but didn't know what it was, if that, if that makes sense. It was obviously some sort of um, chemical explosive of some sort. 
And then, of course, it became apparent as the day went on that there had been a bomb attack. Uh, so we were all taken to um, sifting through the rubble to try and find our, 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 some of our bandmates. And uh, the group I was with, we found a foot inside a shoe. And that sticks with me. That feeling, that thought of picking up that shoe, knowing it belonged to one of uh, my friends, was quite something. The band service was relatively small, really. So uh, we knew everybody in there. And uh, so we are, the day goes on and the, the casualty list grows. And all great musicians, uh, young and old alike, um, are suddenly announced or announced one by one to be dead. Uh, and uh, 20, uh, 21, probably much more, to be honest, the, the psychological effects uh, resonated. It tore the heart out of the barracks and also the town. It's a small town deal. And, uh, yeah, it tore the heart out of the town as well. So for me, dealing with it post-bombing, if you like, um, the, the Royal Navy sent a psychiatrist down. And uh, Lieutenant Commander O'Connell, I think his name was. And ironically, he'd been debriefing us uh, on the way back from the Falklands. Now, there was a good few years, eight or nine years in between the two incidents. But uh, when I was uh, coming back from the Falklands... I paid lip service to it, I think. It was him and the Padre. We talked about things in a little group session. And I think it was early days of people realising that PTSD could affect people. So eight or nine years later, after the little bombing, having known this Lieutenant Commander O'Connell in, in a previous experience, made it much easier for me uh, to speak about how I felt. And I think it's one of the main reasons I don't actually suffer with PTSD from, from that incident. I also think it helped me in my, my next career in the police, where I also dealt with a lot of uh, traumatic and difficult situations. I think being able to open up and discuss and decompress, as I think they call it now, um, it really helped me then and consequently in the police. So very, very sad set of circumstances and... Uh, but luckily, touch wood, um, I think I don't have any um, skeletons in the closet at the moment. I think a couple of things just to take away from that, Brian. Firstly, thanks for talking about it. But also, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up with, with you was the fact that I, I think we forget these things at our peril. People tend to think soldiers were killed in Northern Ireland, but there was many killed in mainland Britain and in Germany. And secondly... Every service person we've talked to in this podcast who's been in operations has got some sort of scarring, either mentally or physically. And the common thread that comes out is don't be embarrassed to seek help and talk about it. And you again have reiterated that. Yeah, I think in the in in the service in the era of service I, I joined in, it wouldn't have been manly, if you like, to talk about those things. But luckily, as operations have gone on, Afghanistan, um, Iraq. Uh, the Falklands. I think slowly it's come out, and now they're they're all over it. Luckily, but by them I mean that the the, uh, the, the psychiatrist and the counselling is there. All you need to do is ask, and uh, I think that's an important thing to do now. Recognise if you need to talk and 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 find the help because it is out there. It certainly helped me, and uh, I'm as weird as they come. So, Brian, what inspired you to write your book, and how did you go about it? Well, obviously, like all military units, we have our, um, our get-togethers, our reunions. And just before lockdown, uh, I went to a reunion in Plymouth. And nearly everyone was there, apart from seven guys 
um, who, had, who through, through nat- natural lifestyle and age had passed away. So seven of the guys I went to the Falcons with were no longer with us. Uh, and so I said to the guys at the bar, uh, I said, look, we need to get our small but important part of this, the war written down. And they all turned to me and said, you, you've got to do it. And they were bullying me. They know that in deal, I write the annual Royal Marines pantomimes each year, the sound of Musily, Dad's Barmy, crazy things like this we do each year in deal. So they know I had some writing experience. So um, I had kept a diary during the, the Falklands, and I'd taken my own camera. And I also got some contemporaneous uh, diary notes from other guys. And I sat down, sat down and wrote this book. And I wrote the first three chapters as I thought a book should read. And then I went back and read it, and it was very sterile. There was no me in it. It was just as you'd imagine a book to be written. So I just went with it. I, I, I am so in my book. Now, it, there, there is some humour. Um, there is some emotion. There are um, some good dits, if you like, some good stories. But um, it is genuinely me. And, I, and I'm pleased to say it's one of the very few things uh, I suppose I can say I'm proud of. Um, the reviews are good. And uh, everyone who's read it says they can see my humour in it. And when you're dealing with things like burials at sea and war, to get that and sort of get it right, um, I'm quite pleased with in a in a non-smug kind of way. Well, that's great, mate. And uh, more importantly, where can listeners get a copy? Well, you can get them through the the uh, publisher. It's called Pen and Sword, uh, or you can get it through Amazon. Uh, that's the, uh, the online. Um, you can get it from Waterstones. They'll order it for you. But it's worth checking all three sites because invariably one of them have it on offer. Because it's a hardback and it's a good quality hardback. And I'm not just talking about the writing, the paper and the uh, the print. Apparently, they've spent a lot of time on. So, uh, And the pictures come through. There's a lot of good pictures in there that are of my own. So, um, yeah, um, Pen and Sword, Amazon or Waterstones or any good charity shop, I think, by now. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be for the- I, mean, I, 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 really, I think, and we spoke about this on the other you know, with the guests and the Falklands is every time we do a Falklands episode, I learned something totally new about a war I thought I knew a lot about. And again, you've, you've, you know, I didn't know that Cambria went to Argentina uh, and the other elements of your war. And it's somehow, having read war books about the Falklands from the senior officer side, from Jimmy's story to Brum's story to your story, it's a total different perspective on that war, which was the last, and I've said it before, the last of the single, you know, the British wars. We have never fought a war since on our own. Yeah, I think it was important when you consider the the cost of war uh, in the Falklands. It's hard to reconcile the loss of life, but I was able to justify is probably too grand a word. But when you went ashore and met the Falkland Islanders. There were people like me and you. They're like a pint of beer, red telephone boxes, Sunday lunch. They drive on the left and they'd been invaded. And we were the only people who could liberate them. And I, I use the word Lee, uh, we advisedly. Like I say, I wasn't sure doing the dirty tough stuff. But um, it, that's the justification. That's what we're, we're paid to do. We were liberating uh, British subjects who had been um, harassed and uh, by the Argentines, invaded. And uh, so for once, people had to put their head above the parapet. And uh, for, for me, it was a, diff- a lot of heavy price to pay 
But if you met the Falkland Islanders, you'd, you'd say it was a price that had to be paid. Well, Brian, I think I speak for Kev uh, and everybody else listening that MD took part in that war, regardless of the role, has my respect because it was a hell of a fight and uh, it was a hard-won victory for the British forces. Thank you. It's certainly um, uh, an episode in my life I'll never forget. And uh, it made me a slightly different man, and I'm sure it changed everyone who went. But, um, yeah, it's it. Paul does that to people. As usual, we'll finish off with our Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. What have you chosen for this episode? Well, my book choice is, it seems quite heavy, but it's called Sapiens, A Brief History of Mankind by an Israeli called Yuval Noah Harari. And it sounds quite heavy because it is. It's um, a bit psychology, a bit mankind history, a bit how and where we get religion from. But I don't remember ever turning a page and it not bending my mind a bit and making me think about something differently. Um, so I learned a lot from reading that book. It's a real mind stretcher. And a good book to sit on a sun lounge with on a holiday. I says very heavy for a holiday book, that one, Brian. Yeah, I'm very, um, <laughs> no, very gin and tonic on one side. And, uh... it, it, it sounds though, no, it is. It's this style of writing. He, he takes heavy subjects and he breaks them down into a set of daily orders. There we go, daily orders. And uh, this, is what, this is what this happened. This is why this happened. This is how this happened. Go so I've seen it have really good reviews, so I might go back and have a revisit it. Uh, I thought it might be a bit intellectually too challenging for me being a thick ex soldier. <laughs> yes, I agree with you, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to. I, I can't even say into that, Kevin. <laughs> and so, your film choice, Brian. Well, this one I saw just a few weeks ago. It's a modern British comedy. And it's not because it's got my name in it. It's called Brian and Charles. It's a crazy British comedy about uh, a guy who lives in Wales. He makes things in his shed and he makes himself a, a robot. And uh, I won't say anymore because it'll, it'll be a spoiler alert, but um, it really got my sense of humour and uh, really enjoyed that. So Brian and Charles. And your luxury item? Well, I think, I think I've made mention that drumming... Uh, from my earliest days through my Royal Marine career, even when I was a police officer and right up to, I was gigging last night, drumming has been uh, that single strand throughout my life that's pulled it all together. So I'd take some drumsticks and uh, I'd sit happily on a beach with a log waiting to be rescued. And drum for help as well, Brian. I've no idea where that's going to go. Anyway, Colin, your choice this episode so my choice this episode is a book called Company K by William March and it's a series of 113 short connected stories by every soldier in the company so and some are a single paragraph and some are a couple of pages and the author fought in France in World War One, winning the Croix de Guerre if that's how you pronounce it the Distinguished Service Cross and the Navy Cross and he brings this experience to bear in his writing um, if you expect another storm of steel, you'll be disappointed as it focuses on more mundane aspects of the human condition, but also features bravery, cowardice, selfishness, compassion, and, and much more. I knew about the US Marines in World War One primarily from the Battle of Belleau Wood, which is part of the US Marine folklore, where they're reputed to have earned their nickname the Devil Dogs from the Germans. 
So that sort of really added a bit of colour to the marine history in World War I for me. And uh, one of the most famous quotations in the Marine Corps history comes during the initial step-off of that battle at Belle Air Wood when First Sergeant Dan Daly, a recipient of two Medals of Honour, prompted his men of the 73rd Machine Gun Company forward with the words, Come on, you sons of bitches, do you want to live forever? An outstanding Marine who won the Medal of Honour twice. My choice this week is, um, or this episode, is a, a book by James Comey. It's called Saving Justice, and you may remember him as the FBI director that was um, fired by President Trump when he was firing everybody at the same time. And before he was the FBI director, he had a, a longer, very career in law and justice system, and he understands more than most what a force for good the U.S. justice system can be. If not, sometimes it's we're not seeing it in this very positive light at the moment, or in the last few years. And and he goes on in his book to show how far the law and order side of American justice has strayed during the Trump presidency. And as I mentioned, he was around at the time when the U.S. intelligence community was being criticised by the by the president and his um, entourage. And then during the mass sackings of um, some very senior people in the American government, he was one of them. Post that, he wrote a book and obviously gives his side of the story, which hasn't had that much um, exposure. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff going on at the same sort of time, even now. You'll be able to write part two next year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't... <laughs> right, that's, that, that's, that's the fear, isn't it? Anyway, we're, well, we're straight into politics, which we normally try and stay off of. No, we can't do politics. <laughs> just just keep watching BBC to watch the news about court cases. <laughs> well, that's it for another episode. So thanks to Brian for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email and the social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. And as we all know, I'm happy to take requests on postcards, letters, snail mail. Whatever, whatever way you want to send it to us. You'll find us on all the usual suspects, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, the interweb, wherever, wherever you like. And if you download us from, YouTube, uh, from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great for you to leave us a review there or anywhere where you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.